what I've got you till the pub closes, is that right? Um, you nervously laugh, because it might be true, you don't know. Um, am I right in saying that today is Mother's Day in the UK? All right, mums, you are heroes. I just want to say that. Um, I feel like all of us should be standing up right now and saying that. Mums are heroes, especially in a, a small church plant. As things get going, as things get growing, I remember being involved as my parents started a church uh, what, 25 years ago, and my brother and I really being uh, church kids, kind of passed around, and we knew everybody, and everybody knew us. And uh, I must admit um, to being a little bit of a cyber stalker uh, in terms of Grace London, um, I may have listened to most of your sermons since the start. Well, Andrew Simmons, don't tell him, though. Um, and I'm so excited about what you guys are doing here, about what's happening here with this church plant. I think it's amazing. Um, I often thinking about it. I don't know if you guys have seen, you probably haven't because you're, you're good people, but uh, I don't know if you've seen the Lego movie. Uh, it's not just a kid's movie, okay? There's a, there's, the theme track of that, of that movie is everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're part of a team. And it's a really catchy tune. And I think I must have annoyed Bronwyn for about two weeks just humming this song and singing this song all the time. But when I think about Grace London and I think about the journey that you guys are on since the end of last year, uh, it's just such a thrilling, exciting thing, right? And, and in my mind, I'm often thinking everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're part of a team. To listen to Andy's sermons, especially this last series, Building with God, uh, what kind of church is God calling you to be in the city of London? Uh, the impact for his glory, for the people's good, for, for London's good, that you could be to the city, that in many, many, many years' time, London, the, as a city, could look back and go, wow, we're really grateful for those Grace London people. Uh, they really made an impact here. Amen. And that's, that, to me, is such an exciting, powerful prospect. Um, and so what I want to do here is probably do something that's totally insane and irresponsible, but that's okay. I want to go through Matthew 18. The entire chapter. So it's 35 verses. And uh, because I don't have you till uh, closing time, um, we're going to just shoot through it. And we're going to have a look at what Jesus talks about in terms of how we, as a community of faith together, relate to one another. I think that what you've been hearing in terms of preaching for the last few months has been so inspiring in terms of what could be and looking to what God wants to do with you guys and in the city of London and I think for, for tonight, what I want to do is zero in and have a look at uh, what Jesus is talking about here in terms of how the community of faith, especially one that's starting up like this, relates to one another, lives together, does life together, does ministry together. Because if you've been a part of church for any period of time, um, I've, been, I've been in various churches, I think the last 26 years, and you start realizing that as you get in, it's everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're part of a team, and then you start realizing, wait, everything's kind of okay, uh, the team's a little bit awkward, oh man, I really had a brush up with that person, uh, we actually, we were this close to having a bit of a boxing match, whatever the case may be. I also love that sound, and I hope you hear it on the recording, because that's the sound of life. I think any church where all you hear is the preacher speaking, there's a bit of a problem there. Um, but in terms of church life, and as you go on in the next couple months, in the next couple years together, you start to realize, wow, this church thing is actually sometimes quite challenging. 
Not because you have to think about what's our statement of faith, what's our plan in terms of uh, reaching and impacting London, but actually it's quite difficult because of the person on your left. Yeah, you, some of you have to look around to see who's that. Um, because people together, we together, can make things complicated, make things difficult. And so what I want to have a look at here is Jesus going, guys, this is what I'm calling you to and how you relate with one another. Before I do that, let's just see if I can lift this up. All right. So let's read Matthew 18 and uh, verse 1 to 35, and let's get going. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as, as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now that's a lengthy passage of scripture. I'm not sure if anybody has tried to preach 35 verses with you in one sitting, but it's going to be good. I hope. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a mess up, then uh, for the sake of the recording, my name is Andrew Haslam. <laughs> I've just been practicing my South African accent. Um, so what I want to do with us uh, this afternoon is to have a look at this passage and see how there's two questions being asked. The disciples and then Peter are going to ask these two poignant questions, and then Jesus is going to give two answers, and he's going to tell some stories along the way, which Jesus is prone to do, as he loves to try and make this plain to us. As we do that, I wish I could just go line for line, verse for verse. In fact, just 18 verse 1, I wish I had like three sessions with us just to preach that thing. But what we're going to do is we're going to draw out three major uh, headlines that Jesus touches on in terms of the community of faith, in terms of life in the church. And the first is going to be the heart of the community of faith. He's going to talk about the heart of the community of faith. He's going to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation in the community of faith. And he's going to talk about the motivation. What motivates us to be like this in the community of faith. So, 18 verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this question has so much subtext. As you read it, it might seem quite simple, quite obvious on the surface. But it's kind of like um, in Snow White, when you have, you have the Wicked Queen asking mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? There's major subtext. She's not just asking if she looks good today. Right? There's an issue of comparison, competition. Her identity, her position, her status is found in her beauty. Right? She draws power, respect, perhaps love, certainly fear from how she looks. And in the story, we know that she's challenged by Snow White. When you have a look at a question like this, and the disciples are asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There is so much subtext at play. And just to touch on some of this, in the first century in the ancient Near East, power, status, position, is how people related to one another. Understanding pecking order allowed it to be possible. We knew how we could relate to one another and where we stood. Right? And so you saw that on a macro level. You had the king and the rulers, and you had those who were not king and not ruling. Right? And you knew how the relationships worked in that regard. The king was in charge, and his subjects did what he said. In the home, on the micro level, this was a similar thing. You had the father, the patron, the paterfamilias, who would exercise complete power in the family. And the wives and children and slaves often had almost completely no standing social standing, or self-determination. And these issues of how we relate to one another in terms of power and status and position is what governed neatly and tidily the society of the ancient Near East where the disciples found themselves. The only thing is now they've been brought into this wild thing called the kingdom of God through Jesus, and we're not quite sure how the pecking order works, right? We're not entirely sure who's the best, who's at the top, because if we can figure out the pecking order, we know how to relate to one another. And the reason why they're asking this question is because in Matthew's gospel, Peter is singled out quite a lot. 
You know, when, when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, this is not revealed to you by man. Peter, on this rock, on you, I will build my church. And there's this singling out of Peter. In the passage before, we have the same thing. The, the disciples never like to be outdone or have one of the others get a leg up on top of them. In chapter 20, a little bit later, two guys, the sons of thunder, James and John, they get their mom involved. <laughs> Super dangerous. Mom should not be involved in this. Right? Their mom approaches Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, I know you're going to come into your kingdom. Please let my boys be number one and number two. I don't care about the order. Just make sure that they're number one and number two. Right? This issue of who's best, who's top, solidifies and gives structure to how they think they are to relate to one another. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, what about us today? I mean, we're in a fairly flat, egalitarian society, hopefully. Uh, Bronwyn and I moved here at, in September last year, so we're fresh off the boat, as we've been told. And uh, we've been trying to get to know and understand the English culture. We thought that because we speak the same language, it would be the same. That's not the case at all. <laughs> at the college, I'm at uh, Oak Hill Theological College. Andrew, Andrew did his master's there. And uh, I've realized quite quickly that where I come from, when you have a professor, you know, a doctor, somebody... You say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags, full, sir, how high should I be jumping, sir? That's kind of how it works where I come from. Here, it's, what's up, bro? Hey, and you use their first name, which to me just shocked the daylights out of me. That's not how it's done. This man didn't study for 30 years to become a doctor, and now you call him bro or hey, first name, right? We think about it today, and we go, surely we're not preoccupied or bothered with this issue of status, this issue of position, but if you think about it, not much has necessarily changed in the last 2,000 years. I mean, a lot has changed. But in terms of how we relate to one another, think about it subconsciously, actively, but even subconsciously, we are often trying to set the pecking order in any given room that we're in. When you are with friends, you rank yourself, don't you? I'm the smartest of the group. I'm the strongest of the group. I'm the best musician of the group. Think about when you are at work. So-and-so is just a little bit ahead of you for that promotion. Right? Oh, he's the best at his job. What about when you're at the pub and you're watching football? Who's the biggest fan? Who's the most knowledgeable in terms of the club? Who's the most drunk? Hopefully that's not necessarily you guys. But there's definitely competitions for all kinds of things going on. We're always vying for power, status, to try and find something to hold on to in terms of where we stand in the pecking order. Often this happens in marriages and families, right? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen between spouses is that we're not considering one another, but we're trying to secure our own position, our own joy, our own desire ahead of our spouse causes lots of tension, doesn't it? Education is like that. Education, we fight, with, compete with one another all the time. When I got to Oak Hill, I thought I was fairly intelligent. Got there, realized I'm not particularly intelligent. There's a lot of guys a lot smarter than I am, right? All the things that I thought I was good at, all the things that I thought defined me, all of a sudden disappeared. Disappeared. I'm not the best drummer. I'm not the best academic. I'm not the most spiritual. I'm not the best anything. Right? I'm probably the best me. I'd be really gutted to find out there was someone who was a better me than me. <laughs> but the whole point of the matter is we are consistently doing this thing of position, status, power 
Because when we're able to find ourselves in the pecking order, we understand how we can relate to one another, what we can expect from one another. It's also an issue of, I have security in this moment. I'm secure knowing my place. I'm protected. I can defend myself. I derive respect, honor from being the best. And so Jesus hears this question and he catches them out straight away. Because at the heart of this issue is not a simple question of who's the greatest. It's an issue of how do we relate to one another. We want another pecking order. And Jesus calls it out straight for what it is. It's ego. Right? My ego. And so many times in churches, especially a couple of years down the line, you have this moments where division can happen in church because of ego. You have life groups that fall apart because of ego. You have relationships that break because of ego. One particular worship leader wanted to do a song their way. They didn't get to do it their way. And so now there's big problems. You weren't greeted when you arrived in the morning and that offended your sensibilities. And so you left, never to return. There's all these issues at play and Jesus calls it out straight away. And he's going to go, I hear your question. But actually, in my kingdom, in this community of faith that we're starting here, this is not how we do things. So let's carry on reading. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 2 to verse 4. And Jesus, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does what he does best, which is shock them. He draws into their circle this child. We don't even have a name for the child. In Greek, it's neuter. Here in English, they use him. Because it's probably not going to be appropriate to say, and he drew it into the circle. But it's an anonymous child. Which really would have incensed the disciples because the, the adults are having a conversation. What's the child doing here? And this is a big deal for the first century. And so he says, unless you change, unless you turn and become like this child, unless you humble yourself like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he also says that it's people who are humble like this child who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's he trying to do there? Well, I've heard a couple of times when people have preached or read in commentaries that they say, well, really the issue is that if you look at a child, children are not concerned about status or comparison or whether they're better than their friends or competing with their friends. The only problem with that hypothesis is, I think, actual children. Right? You can laugh at that. That is a little bit funny. Actual children. If you've had any children, you know that children are well prone to competition and wanting to be better than their friends. And uh, But I'm the best player. That's my thing. Why are you sharing it with them? Uh, so much tension arises from wanting to be the best as a child. So what is actually at play here? What is Jesus trying to do? Well, he's not talking about the ethical heart of a child, right? Because the ethical heart of a child is probably just going to be, don't do that, they're going to do exactly what you just told them to do. He's talking about the position of the child in society. Because a child is completely reliant on the people around them. Especially in their early years. Right? The child is not self-determinative. Rely on their parents for, and family for identity, for sustenance, for care, for love, for shelter, for a home. 
And Jesus says the reality in the kingdom of God is we are all children of our heavenly Father. Your skills, your qualities, how wise you are, how good at your job you are, all the things that you hold on to for identity, position, and status. None of that stuff matters in God's family. Why? Because we are all on this equal playing field because we're all just children of God. And Jesus immediately says, actually, in the community of faith, the way we're going to relate to one another is in humility because we're children of God. So the first point, when Jesus is talking about the heart of the community, he says that we as a community of faith need to have a heart of humility. That with a heart of humility, as we love and engage one another, we will inadvertently prefer one another, care for one another. Why? Because it's not what I want, it's not my position that's ahead of yours. It's equal care, equal consideration. He's going to move on here in verse 5. He's going to say, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe, there's the double woe. When there's double woe, you need to pay attention. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9 just continues this idea. Jesus hits us with this quite radical one-two. Right? These two images. The one about the millstone. So a millstone, massive stone used in grinding. Right? So in the first century, huge thing. Imagine that around your neck, dropped into the ocean. You're not swimming with that. Drowning. He's talking about drowning, and he's talking about losing a limb. These are stark images. Now, he's not saying if you sin against somebody, then that's actually going to be the consequence. You're going to lose a limb or drown. He's using these two to shock us once again. And what's going on here? He's just told us that the community of faith is one that is humble of heart, humble in its approach to one another, not ranking, not trying to vie for position and status, but rather seeing one another as equal children of God. But he takes it one step further, and he does an amazing thing. He points to this child, the child who is representing the marginalized those in society who are not able to necessarily care for themselves or be strong against those who are the strongest of society. And he goes, to them, I am pledging my allegiance. I, as the one who leads you, am associating myself with them. That when you welcome, the idea here of receiving is to embrace, share your life with. That when you are doing that with one another, you are embracing and sharing your life with me. He takes it even further and goes, the community of faith is not just one that's humble of heart, but it's also one that seeks the godliness of the people around them. He moves on and says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or whoever causes one of these, so the little ones, he moves in the language, he's not just talking about children, but actually all of the community of faith. Whoever causes anyone within the community of faith to sin, Or to stumble is another way to translate it. And then he gives us that graphic picture of the millstone. What is he doing there? 
He's going that you and I in the community of faith, we together care for and seek the best in the godliness of each other. When we are humble, when we are relating to one another as children of God, we are going to be encouraging, pushing, stirring one another to good works and love and the pursuit of Christ. But you'll find that when I'm consumed by self, when I'm consumed with what I want, that the results are often quite damaging to the people around me. Is that not the case? That quite often my sin is not just personal, just to me, but it has severe consequences for the people around me. That when I'm not relating to the people around me in humility and love, but rather I'm seeking what I deserve, I can lash out in quick judgmental critiques, can't I? I can be short-tempered, impatient. In the process, as I affect the people around me, this can, what he's talking about here, cause them to stumble, cause them to lose faith, cause them to lose hope, to lose heart, to have their eyes, which were focused on Christ, to be drawn in in self-protection. Often our lashing out and our not taking charge of our own sin can cause the people around us to wander away, to stumble, to struggle. And what Jesus is saying here is, my friends, as he moves on, in the world there are just millions upon millions, piles upon piles of opportunities for us to face trial, to face temptation, and to face sin. And woe to us if we are the cause of that thing within the community of faith. That we are called to stir one another to godliness. And he's going to move on in the next few verses. Let's read uh, verse 6 to 9. Or rather, verse 7 to 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, as I said. He's talking about how sin is, we have every opportunity, every temptation in front of us, but actually we as people do not want to be found responsible for causing others to stumble. And then he uses this example of, um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You would have seen this earlier in Matthew 5, and he uses it in the context of lust. He uses it in the context of lust of the heart. That if there's things in our lives that cause us to lust, cause us to sin, we deal ruthlessly with those things. But the context here, and I'm going to try to be quick about it, the context here is actually the community of faith. That our own personal sin is not just about us, but it affects the people around us. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's carrying on this idea. Community of faith is meant to be people who, in humility, deal with one another. That we as a community of faith are meant to seek the godliness of the people around us. But right here, we're also to seek the good of the people around us. The picture here is of the parable of the lost sheep. And I'm sure you would have heard a lot of these sections of Matthew 18 preached in different ways at different times. But actually, it's one whole narrative. The idea here is that it's sheep or people within the community who've wandered away from the church, who've wandered away from gathering with God's people, who've wandered away from God. 
And you'll notice that he moves on. Not only are we supposed to seek their godliness, are we supposed to be encouraging them towards God, but when we see them wander away, you'll realize that there's no mention of church leaders necessarily here. I mean, it applies to church leaders, but it's not the case if people wander away, it's the church leader's job, as though it's only Andy's job to ever be doing any of these things. The man would quit tomorrow. But actually, us together as the community of faith, when we see people who were part of us, who are going through tough times, who are going through trials and struggles and periods of doubt, we get off our backsides and in love draw them back into the community. At the end of 2013, we were as a family going through a really uh, severe trial of our own. My dad was leading the church that we were part of and he had a really bad stroke. And in the process of these few months as we were dealing with the fallout and how that looked for our family, I had a dear friend in our church who was going through an incredibly, incredibly difficult time. My eyes were so focused on myself that even though I saw what he was going through, and even though that I knew God was good and sovereign in our moment, I was so obsessed with how I felt that I was not concerned with what was going on with him. And where it could have been dealt with and handled and he could have been drawn back in, into the community probably quite easily, it took months and months and months of repairing that relationship. Here's the issue. We are called as a community of faith to love, to serve, and to draw each other back when we're going through difficult struggles, difficult times. Tracking with me on that? As the church, we are called to Act humbly, live humbly with one another. We are to seek the godliness and the good for one another. And then Jesus is going to move on here. I love that picture of the church that has a heart of humility, seeking the godliness and seeking the good. Love that. We're kind of back to the everything is awesome tune, aren't we? We're a little bit back there. We're a little bit back there. And yet Jesus, again and again in the Gospels, never sticks his head in the sand and decides or chooses to deny or ignore the messiness of the human condition, does he? In fact, he quite awkwardly and quite difficult for us to read sometimes, he puts his finger right on the pulse, doesn't he? And he's going to do that here. Because the reality is, as much as we want to sing the tune of everything is awesome and be a community of faith that has a humble heart seeking the godliness and the good, the reality is that if it hasn't happened yet, we're probably going to rub each other up the wrong way. Before I leave, maybe I'll offend somebody here tonight. I haven't even been here for two hours. When we are doing life together, when we are following God together, when we are serving in the ministry of the gospel together, at every turn there's an opportunity where you might offend somebody, where you might overlook somebody. And how do we deal with that? Well, that's what Jesus is going to talk about in this next passage. So verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there, I am, there am I among them. 
I just want to emphasize this right out the gate. The first verse in that passage, verse 15, is plan A. Sometimes we can look at this passage and think of it as this three-step process that's kind of inevitable. Well, there's a fight. Man, I mean, I'm going to try and reconcile, but probably going to have to get people involved, and eventually someone's going to get kicked out. Often that can be the attitude. The issue here is that verse 15, actually plan A is that we don't sin against each other, right? That is plan A. Plan B is verse 15. That if my brother or sister sins against me, what do I do? I go to them. Now, if you've been around church or any kind of group for any period of time, what's probably going to happen is you're probably going to talk about it plenty, except just not with that person, right? In effort of kind of offloading. This is how it goes. This is how it goes. I don't want to speak badly of them. Uh, yeah, you laugh. I'm, I'm not trying to gossip. I'm just really concerned about my brother so-and-so. I just, you know, and that's how, then the next person, hey, you know, I don't want to gossip. I wasn't there, but apparently it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? What does Jesus say here? If your brother sins against you, go to your brother. Now, there's a couple things at play. It's not if your brother does something that's kind of against your preferences, have a fight. Right? It's if your brother or sister sins against you. It's that in any way where they have taken the things that God has called them to be and rather done the opposite. Where they've been called to love you, prefer you in love, rather they've actually been incredibly harsh and incredibly unkind for whatever reason. It can be major, it can be small. But either way, the point is to go to them. And I love what he says next. If he listens to you. It's not just if he, it's the understanding here or translation here can be if he responds rightly to you. Now what I want to do is flip this around a little bit. Because if you're like me, which you're probably holier, so that's great. If you're like me, you often think of yourself in the victim role, don't you? I've been wronged. I've been wronged. One of you have wronged me. I'm going to let you know about it, but don't worry, I'm going to do it holy. Actually, I just want to reverse this for a second. Let us stand in the shoes of the person who's wronged somebody else. It's not just an issue of, oh, you've been wronged, so go to your brother. It's, you've done the wrong. Right? You've been wronging somebody else. What is, what's the onus on you? The onus is to respond rightly. They've come to you. They've brought it before you. Hopefully it's in humility, love, seeking the godliness and the good. And you respond rightly. The end of this is you've won your brother. How amazing is that? That's the point. You've won your brother. In the early days of our marriage, uh, Bronwyn and I were driving around a part of our town. And we had had dinner or breakfast at a particular restaurant. And we were having this completely unnecessary and completely exaggerated fight, which never happens, I'm sure, with other marriages. But this totally unnecessary fight about the fact that I thought we had been to the restaurant on this side, and she thought we'd been to the restaurant on the right. They're right next to each other. But you can see it's a really key issue. This is a a fundamental thing to be fighting about. It's not sarcasm. And so we were trying to go, who's right, who's right, who's right? In fact, I was going to get out the car to go see the restaurant. To prove that I was right. In the process of this whole thing, I got back in the car and we were driving and I realized I was right. (laughs) I was right. And it's the worst time I've ever been right in my life. 
Why? Because, what, I was right about a restaurant, but I'd lost my girl. Like, I'd won the argument, but I'd lost my wife. I don't know if those two things quite equate, do they? It's the same in the community of faith. That when we do get up in each other's grills, the point is to win your brother. Now, what happens if that doesn't work? What happens if actually your brother or sister just don't respond? Well, he's going to follow on, and I wish I had more time to unpack this, but really what I want to get across is verse 15 as plan, plan A. The, po- the process of what, of, of what Jesus is talking about is if your brother refuses to listen or respond correctly, your brother or sister refuses to respond correctly, then bring witnesses in. But these aren't witnesses who are judge and jury. These are witnesses who are coming in with the same heart of humility, seeking the godliness and the good so that they can hear and be a part of the conversation. If after that, your brother or sister, who has grieved you, who has done this, particularly, this particular thing, turns around and says, no, I'm not going to apologize, I'm not going to repent, I don't care. Don't care about the fallout, don't care that you were hurt, doesn't matter to me, don't care that these brothers here, brothers and sisters here, agree with you, doesn't matter to me. Then the next step is it's brought before the community. You'll see here that Jesus then follows on with a, a line that we love to print on T-shirts and on coffee mugs, you know, where two or three are gathered. And we pretty much apply that to anything we feel like, don't we? In, in the context here, it's to do with church discipline. It's to do with how we relate to one another in the community of faith. And what he's talking about is when it's clear within the community that somebody has sinned, not personal preference, but an issue of sin that is clearly seen in the Scriptures, that's clearly dealt with, Right, And the people of the church together agree on this issue. But that person is not interested in reconciliation, not interested in repentance, not interested in forgiveness. Then at that moment, there's a divide there. And with great sadness, they might be asked to not be a part of the community of faith anymore. Here's the thing. Our hope and our heart is that never happens. I'm not here to try and give you this foolproof three-step process of how you can get to that point. I'm asking, please never go to step two or three. Please stay at step one, and then we go back again. Is that all right? So, the community of faith is one that is humble of heart, seeking the good, the godliness, and the good of those around them, and it is one of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness should be the breath, the air in our lungs. It should be in our bones. It should flow in our veins, repentance and forgiveness. And then he's going to move on to the last thing, and I want to be quick about it so that I don't keep you to closing time. The third point, which is the motivation. Right? So we've looked at the heart of the community of faith. We've looked at the fact that the community of faith is meant to be one of reconciliation and forgiveness. And now we're looking at the motivation of the community of faith. So we're in verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This, this is drama, right? It's drama. How many times do we open the Bible, especially in the Gospels, we read the narratives and it's just dry. How can you read? He's strangling the guy, pleading on his knees. The risk of not paying the debt is having himself and his family and all his stuff sold. Drama. What is Jesus doing? Getting our attention. Getting our attention. We've come to the second question. I promised you there'd be two questions, right? I'm delivering. Well, the scriptures are delivering. I'm just kind of here. The second question is Peter. So Peter, once again, golden boy, asked Jesus, He's been part of this whole conversation. They've asked, who's the greatest? Jesus has smacked them down. In my kingdom, in my community, that's not how we're going to do things. Peter's thinking, oh, okay, I've learned. Okay, I've learned some stuff. Right, so the appropriate question then is, how many times should I be forgiving my brother? He understands forgiveness is part of it. He understands Jesus is asking a radical level of forgiveness and reconciliation. And in some of the histories, some of the um, rabbinic traditions, so the traditions that the rabbis at the time and in their writings to one another, some commentators uh, speak about in the Jewish culture, it was acceptable to forgive someone three times. Three times, right? Three is pretty generous. You know, three strikes and you're out. Okay, we don't play baseball in this country. Great, cricket all the way. Three, three strikes and you're out. Peter's going, oh, okay, three strikes and you're out. But Jesus has just advocated radical forgiveness. All right. I'm going for seven. Seven is also, in Judaism, a complete holy number, right? God created in seven days. So not only is he going for a big number, twice, you know, double, more than double the expected number, but he's also going for the holy number. I mean, this guy is just star pupil all the way. And he thinks he's going to get it now. Jesus is going to turn around and say, that's my boy. But what happens? Jesus turns around to him and says, actually, no, I don't say seven times. I say 77 times. Jesus uses this number of 77, not so that we can actually, you know, so that you go home and you go, oh, man, that Josh, he's on 74. Three more, and we've got problems. That's not how it works. 77, Jesus is taking this perfect number, this model, this idea of absolute generosity, and he's just blowing it out the water. He's essentially giving us a nonsensical figure, right? That within the community of faith, when we are humble of heart, seeking the godliness and the good of the people around us, when we have forgiveness and repentance beating in our veins, we should forgive. Jesus picks up actually what's in the heart of Peter and all of us here when you ask that kind of a question. When you have to put a figure to it, is it really forgiveness? When I'm trying to put a number to it, is it really forgiveness? Jesus tries to illustrate this point even further because he's really trying to get it into the heart of his disciples by telling this radical, radical story. 
23 to 35, I won't read it again, but you know the scene. You have the king, rules over all. One of his servants, commentators speak about the servant not necessarily being, a, being like a slave in rags, but rather a vassal lord, like a lord who's underneath the king. Right? He's a, a servant of the king, and the king has loaned him this 10,000. Right? So 10,000, and it is just a huge sum, 10,000 talents. I want to try and make this plain for us to really see what Jesus is doing. 10,000 talents is like, in our language, saying a gazillion pounds. It's nonsensical to the people of the day. 10,000 talents. One denarii is a laborer's wage per day. Right? So the second servant owes the first servant 100 denarii. No problem. But 10,000 talents... 10,000 is a nonsensical number. Why? Because in Greek, in, in the first century, Mirias, the word 10,000, is the highest number that we had. Jesus is shooting for the stars. 10,000 talents. Impossible to pay back. Comes before the king. The king says, pay up. Falls on his knees. Begs him. Right? There's, there's two options here. Beg, and hopefully the king will give you, give you a stay of execution and say, I'll give you more time. Or it's... Family, himself, possessions, all sold. Now to us, we are disgusted by that idea. How can you do that? How can you sell somebody like that? I, you're right to be disgusted. Fine, that's a good, that's a good instinct. But in the first century, that was a pr- pretty normal idea. Because what happens when you're unable to pay a debt like that or unable to provide for yourself and your family, whether that's through farming, etc., etc., your only avenue, option, to be staying alive, to be sustained, is to offer yourself into indentured servitude like that. I'm not saying it's good, but it's quite normal for the first century. For Jesus' here as they go, serves him right. Yeah, that's exactly right. First of all, where did he get 10,000 talents from? Second of all, definitely not paying that back. That's normal. What's normal for us? Certainly not selling anybody into slavery. But what's normal for us? When somebody owes you a debt, I'm not even talking about a financial debt. When somebody has wronged you, what do you do? What's your gut reaction? Do you hold out a little bit? Give them a little bit of the cold shoulder? Do you, do you make them come, come back? I'm sorry, I'm really so sorry. And, and when you've seen them kind of stretched out enough, you go, that's okay, it's okay. Yeah, we do do that. We absolutely do that. What is socially normal for us in our society when somebody's wronged you, when they owe you, when you demand your justice, when there's retribution that needs to happen? What do we do? We certainly don't often think about forgiveness and reconciliation first up. We think about how must they pay? What are those socially appropriate repayments? I really want us to think about that because it's easy to read this and go, disgusting, selling this guy into slavery. Actually, for Jesus' hearers, it's just like us. What? What do we see as socially appropriate where Jesus would say that's not how we do things? Falls on his knees. He says, please have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. Crazy idea. He can't pay everything. The king has pity on him. Another translation for that is the king's heart went out to him and he forgives him his debt. This radical debt. He forgives it of him. Huge, insane son. Forgiven. I mean, that must have floored the court. What does that servant do? Gets up off his knees. I imagine he's really grateful because not only does he not have to pay it back, but he just got his life handed back to him. He leaves the courts and then enters hypocrisy stage left. 
he finds another servant who owes him a paltry sum, a hundred denarii, something that can be paid back. Throttles the guy and says, pay me right now. Ironically, that man falls on his knees and says exactly the same phrase as he said to the king. Do you, do you, see, do you see the tension here? He says exactly the same thing, does exactly the same thing for a debt that is not even close. And what does he do? No ways. If you can't pay it back, it's off to jail. Rightly so, we read that and we scream hypocrisy, don't we? We scream it. How can you, in the face of such extravagant forgiveness, go and demand retribution from somebody who owes you so little? How can you do that? Well, the king feels the same way, doesn't he? Has that servant dragged back in and says, in the face of what I've given you, you would do that to your fellow servant? And then we see that he's taken off by the jailers. In fact, I think the ESV kind of wussies out here a little bit because in the Greek it's actually hands off to the torturers. But we'll stick with jailers. But keep the torturers in mind. It's severe. What's the point? The point is not if somebody sins against you and, uh, that you should be tortured. Okay. The point is that to Jesus, this is a severe reality. This is severe. Now how do we get to the third point that I was saying here, which is this story tells us the motivation of the community of faith. How do we get there? Simple. A forgiven community is a forgiving community. That what you and I have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mercy and the forgiveness of God is like that 10,000 talents. It is just unspeakable. It's a sum that blows your mind. And yet we've been given it freely by God. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. The reality of the gospel is, and the reality of the human condition, my friends, that the Bible speaks about over and over again, is that you and I are caught in our sin. Now, sin, we often recoil from that word because we feel it's so archaic. It's so churchy. But the idea of sin is everything that lives inside of us, in our will, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our speaking and in our doing, that de-gods God, that's dishonoring to God, and that's dehumanizing, that damages and dishonors His good creation. And you know, you and I, I'm not, even, I'm not even talking about let's do generalizations. I'm talking about me. I know that the stance of my heart before Jesus Christ was not for God. It was not towards God. And it was not seeking the godliness and the goodness of the people before me. It was always seeking my own good. I still struggle with that today. But in the reality that my relationship with God is broken, the reality that my relationship with the people around me is broken, stands Jesus Christ, who on the cross pays the penalty for that exact sin, 10,000 talents, a debt that I could never pay, I've received this unbelievable forgiveness from God. That is my motivation, right? How can I, in the face of that forgiveness, refuse to forgive my brother or sister a paltry offense? Can't be. Verse 35 gets people a bit nervous, and I, I, I promise I'm almost done. Verse 35 gets people a bit nervous, right? Read verse 35, where he says, um, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I, I don't have all the time in the world to unpack this. 
Is Jesus saying here that if you do not forgive somebody, you'll lose your salvation? Right? You'll lose your place within the community of God? The issue here is in the language of heart, which is a regenerative language. When we are unable to forgive our brother and our sister from our heart, it shows that our hearts did not receive the forgiveness of God in the first place. P.J. Smythe has a, is a pastor in South Africa. Actually, Andy's going to go spend some time with him. I don't know if, you, if he's been here yet. He will. He speaks about our hearts being elastic, right? We can bend them towards humility, towards kindness and forgiveness, but they're going to snap back to self, right? They do. It's what we do. The forgiveness that we receive from God in the gospel is not something that pushes the elastic further down, but rather it's the heat of the gospel that melts our hearts. That we have hearts that have been transformed. That in the face of the gospel, when we have really responded in repentance and faith to what God offers us in His forgiveness to us, our hearts are melted. And at every turn, the appropriate response should be, I forgive my brother and my sister from my heart. You with me? Community of faith, how do we relate to one another? Not as a pecking order, not going after power or station or prestige, but we relate to one another as the children of God, humble, seeking the godliness and the goodness of the people around us. Repentance, forgiveness should be beating in our veins. It should be the air we breathe. And we're motivated, not by a system not because some South Africans stood on the stage and shouted at us for two hours and told us to do it, but because the forgiveness we've received from God has melted our hearts to a point where it is the air we breathe, like I've said, to forgive our brothers and sisters. That's the community of faith. That's what we're called to. And it's in that environment that we're able to do what you've been talking about in this building with God. Am I right? It's in that environment, not an environment when we're at each other's throats or we're easily offended or we're withholding forgiveness, but we embody and embrace and model what Christ has given us. Is that okay? So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a, a long chapter like Matthew 18. We thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness and your mercy to us in the gospel. We thank you, Father God, that you have poured out on us forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness, grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that we've been able to receive that, that we've responded in repentance and faith, that you melted our hearts. I pray, Lord, that Grace London, that the men and women seated here would be brothers and sisters, fellow children of God, whose hearts are humble as they relate to one another as such, whose hearts are for each other, seeking the godliness and goodness of those around them ahead of themselves. I pray, Lord God, that repentance and forgiveness would be the air that Grace London breathes. I pray that they as a people and as a community of faith would be radically motivated day in and day out by your forgiveness. We thank you that the only thing we have to offer London or anybody in the world is not a system or a method, but the person of Jesus Christ. We pray that, Jesus, you would ever be before our eyes, 
that as we're reading a passage like that and as we're learning, as we're thinking, as we're wanting to apply this, we realize that it's not purely an intellectual exercise, but rather it's your spirit who is working inside of us, transforming us from one degree to another, that we might be people who embody your forgiveness, that we might be called a community called reconciliation. We love you. We thank you for your goodness to us and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.